So it it takes a while to come to that understanding because there's a lot of stuff that is set up in our um, culture uh, that here, here's what I'm getting at. A lot of the tests that are done in schools to make the test grading easier, in the old days, everything was an essay, which meant that the student had to say what he knew. In modern testing, it's a multiple choice question, which then puts the pressure on the student subconsciously, a lot of people don't realize it, to make guesses, to guess about what we're doing rather yes. than to know. They also will time these tests so that they want you to do it in a hurry rather than letting you have the time that you want to take to finish off the question. So we get into that frame of reference, and in fact, in many um, businesses, it winds up being that way. We don't care about you so long as you do what we want you to do in a hurry. Hmm. And so that gives people then, um, it gives them the delusion that they know when in fact they don't know. And that, don't, and that the delusion of knowing when we don't know is a more, in, at least in the beginning, a more comfortable position than to be honest with ourselves that we really don't know. That in fact, um, this issue of knowing and not knowing or the issue of ignorance is an important, important point within the context of uh, Buddhism. Uh, the second noble truth is in fact uh, the primary uh, problem is not the greed and the ill will. It's that we're ignorant either to it or about it. And when I say ignorant, I'm not using the, uh, the better form of the word ignorant. There's two kinds of ignorance. The ignorance is, is that I don't know and I know that I don't know, which is the good kind. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind that you're coming to. Then there is the ignorance of that I don't know, but it, uh, I don't know that I don't know. This is delusion. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because people think that they do know when in fact they don't. Yeah. And that we are delusional in many, many cases. So part of the wake-up that we have to go through is the wake-up into recognition that, in fact, we don't know. And that's yeah. painful. I mean, our society teaches us that it's painful to not know. You're supposed to, if you, if you don't know the answer on that quest, guess. Yeah. Yeah, like you're supposed to know your job, your career, your, your whole mm -hmm. life before you even know who you are, really. Right. <laughs> and in fact... Uh, that robs the child, then, of the discovery. If you're supposed to already know, then when you do find out something that you were already supposed to know, at best, it's a relief. Mm. 
But if you go out and discover something that you don't know, now that's got a lot of joy built into it. Yeah. To find something that we didn't know before. Now, um, basically, um, the mind does not like to be in a state of doubt. And yet doubt is, is one of the hindrances. And in fact, the state of doubt prevents us from being comfortable. Yeah, yeah. It's, because it's, uh... we have the, often it's the delusion that if we are in doubt because we don't know, that it's somehow dangerous. Yeah. But what you're coming to is you're coming to the understanding that um, just because you don't know something doesn't mean that things are dangerous. So there's fear generally built in with doubt. Yeah. The feeling of fear, the feeling of, uh, of danger. Dying, really? Mm -hmm. Of dying. Like the feeling, it's a, like a little death. Like, uh, you know, like you feel like all of, it can happen in different intensities, but I mean, just just moving to a different country can be something completely uh, scary to people. It can be. Yeah. It can, or it can be an adventure. Exactly. <laughs> Depending on how you see it. Uh, exactly. Uh, well, it depends upon your attitude. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that attitude then is basically put what we are in Anapanasati and in the Eightfold Noble Path much of the skill to be developed is the skill of one's right attitude. Yeah, which is the hardest one. <laughs> well, when we have right view and right sati and right action, uh, excuse me, um, right uh, effort uh, as a basis for our right attitude, then these four things brought together will bring about unification of mind. Yeah. The unification of mind means that you're a whole person. Now, everybody kind of have been told their whole lives that they're a whole person, to where in fact we're not. We're a crowd. Hmm. And that the, the crowd that we are means that at one moment we're this, at the next moment we're that, at another moment, we're something else, and that we don't even readily see the incontinuity. That we yeah. think there's a continuity there when the guy, um, he feels one way uh, on the morning before he gets married. Then during the marriage ceremony, he has a different feeling. And then something goes wrong, the kid loses the ring, he's got a different feeling. Then they go into the uh, uh, reception, and he's got a different feeling. And now he's starting to drink, and he gets a different feeling. And you can see this set of feelings that are happening all day long to this guy. Actually happens to each one of us all day long, and we go from mood to mood to mood. And we don't recognize that we're going from mood to mood to mood. And we think that there's a consistency there that really does not exist. Yeah. Yeah, like a self. That consistency <laughs> is what we call the self. Yeah. Who I am, or the personality. Yeah. In fact, we are not the personality, because the personality itself is not a fixed entity. 
Oh, yeah. And yet, <laughs> people have the idea or the feeling that, uh, that personality is consistent. But our personality changes. It, does, it doesn't stay the same. This mm-hmm. is price of, this is basically what the Buddha is meaning by anicca, is and that it's not that things occasionally change, but rather everything is in a flux and a turmoil all the time. There are millions of causes followed by millions of effects. Every millionth of a second, except I've got the word million, it should be quadrillion or septillion or really fast. And there's so much going on that no human being could possibly be able to keep track of everything that's going on, even in his general vicinity. Hmm. For instance, in a meeting, no one generally knows what's on the mind of anyone this everyone else in that meeting until they speak their mind. And body language can be used, but it's often not reliable. Yeah. So we don't really know. So I congratulate you for coming to the understanding that you're ignorant. <laughs> Thank Most you. <laughs> people don't like that at all. They don't like the idea that they're ignorant. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that I would like to, to talk about to bring back some unity with this is to understand about the three kinds of views. We have a wrong view, we have an ordinary right view, and then we have a supramundane right view. And that each individual person throughout the day will move from wrong view to ordinary right view and occasionally super mundane right view. When we begin to train the mind, we can train it so that it is um, less likely to be in wrong view and less likely to be in in, uh, ordinary right view and uh, more likely to be in super mundane right view, which is basically an investigation mode. You see, the uh, right view, ordinary right view and wrong view have come to a conclusion. Now, the one who has the wrong view generally comes to the conclusion uh, and the hallmark uh, statement is, I can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. I can get away with it. Uh, this basically is the uh, the statement that there is no retribution or there's no comma. But reality really pro- pro- proves that while there may not be this Hindu version of comma as a law, there certainly is the law of cause and effect. Yeah. There is the law of causality. Yeah. And that that law is operating at a very complex level in the sense that sometimes it takes two causes to come together at the right time in order to create an effect. Other times, one effect can become a cause that can cause two different things to happen. So it becomes quite complex. It's not just one thing happens that causes one effect, and one effect causes two things to happen. Oh, no, things can get really complicated in there 
but it's always to do with cause and effect. And that the ones who have wrong view are basically denying this cause effect, this this basic thing of causality. Because it's painful. It, the, the, uh, the physicists are beginning to understand is even more fundamental than gravity. Mm. So one of wrong view is basically saying that he can defy gravity. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> no, I will trip. I will not fall down. This is the idea of I can get away with it. Well, ordinary right view is like mommy coming to the kid and saying, oh, no, you can't get away with it. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. what, that's what ordinary right view is. The ordinary right view is, no, the law of comma does work, and you cannot get away with it. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the way that it's expressed in a wrong view is basically saying there is no mother or father, and we're not talking about my daddy and my mommy. What we're talking about is is that um, the fathering and the mothering or the cause-effect relationship, just like mom and dad together make a baby. That's the cause and effect. But people of wrong view cannot see these relationships. Yeah. They think they, they can get with it. Where in yeah, fact, they, they live from a place of like thinking that way. They act the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, this is basically the attitude of an immature mind, thinking that we can get away with it, because the reality will prove that you sometimes can and you sometimes can't. <laughs> but ordinary right view is making the view, no, you can't get away with it. There yeah. is cause and effect. And it's almost like um, the belief that there are um, other worlds that are going to give the effect. So if you have a causality in this life, that it doesn't matter what happens, even if you go to another world, that world you will have to, uh, that effect will catch up with you. You cannot get away with it. Okay. And so you have the kids saying, I think I can get away with it. And the parents say, no, you can't get away with it. And we're going to make enough rules, laws, rituals, and other things like that to prove you can't get away with it. But uh, while you could say that, okay, that means that there's a distinction between complete chaos or complete barbarism or complete... Um, uh, primitive society versus an organized society. An organized society would be ordinary right that we have rules, we have laws, we have rituals, we have things to do, uh, we have pleasantries uh, or formalities to go through, etc. like this. This is the way that we look at it from ordinary right view, that um, that we have to pay attention to this stuff. But the problem with it is, is that even though that this builds a, a society, it doesn't eliminate suffering. It may eliminate quite a lot of suffering because chaos uh, yeah. and wild jungle is really dangerous. 
and our society is certainly not dangerous, it still has a problem because mm -hmm. we still feel like that things are dangerous. Yeah. That this this quality of danger is actually instinctual. And that we need to operate at that deeper level of instinct to deal with fear because uh, we can see that the people who originally tried to deal with their fear of uh, wrong view or the, of the fear of the jungle was by making fortresses, making laws, making rules, etc. like that was to try then to bring down the danger. But it was only partially effective. Yeah. But it didn't do the whole job. And so super mundane right view now um, is, is the new way of looking at it. So first off, we can say that wrong view does come to the conclusion that I can get away with it. And then he's proven wrong and he suffers. The one, the right view uh, then is nobody can get away with anything. And then when people do get away with things, we don't like it. Because mm. our laws, no, enough. Let's, let's add a new prison. Let's, let's hire more police. Let's uh, uh, get more rules passed, more laws done, more legislation. Yeah. And then we can have your, the society the way that they want. Reminds me of uh, addiction. It's, just, it's kind of the same, it's the same exactly. way addiction works. Uh-huh. <laughs> Exactly. But uh, again, this ordinary right view is based upon a conclusion that we think that we know when in fact we don't. Hmm. Super mundane right view is willing to add that level of ignorance, that not knowing back into the equation to say, we have to look at what we're doing. We have to note we have to look. And yeah. so this is where right view and right sati work together so well is because right sati means to wake up and take a look. Sati is to wake up and, and view is to, to look at what's going on, to see what we're doing. Yeah. This is to wake up. Now, once we see what's going on, we may we need now to take the effort that it changes takes to change just one thing, just one little thing that needs to be changed. And yet, when we hear of right effort being on the eightfold noble path, that it seems like a whole lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, and it, it gets you tired. <laughs> to where really it's a very easy thing. To do, um, and so we look at right effort from the perspective of two things: one is the mind, and the other one is the body. So, with the mind, we're going to merely change the content of the mind. So, if the mind has wandered away from the breath, then we're merely going to bring the mind back to the breath. That's one's right effort. We had already decided with our right view that we were going to watch the breathing. We had, and so now we see that we're not watching the breathing. So we come back 
and we take a deep, long breath. By taking that deep, long breath, we're actually beginning to energize the mind, give it some uh, effort or give it some energy, um, as well as taking the focus away from the mind that was full of hindrance. So let us say that we were thinking about an old episode where we had a fight with some guy. Or we're thinking about uh, a job that I used to have. And that we recognize that, wait a minute, um, I'm beginning to feel bad because I don't have that job anymore. I don't have that house anymore. I don't have that or the other thing anymore. That things have changed. And so we begin to feel bad because we're thinking about stuff that's in the past. But then we wake up and we say, wait a minute, I don't have to feel bad right now. I can feel good instead. Yeah. All I have to do is take the effort. In fact, that waking up and saying, wait a minute, I don't have to, to think about the past. That's actually a brand new thought already. Yes. And so we've already taken the right effort that's needed to change the mind. That's how easy it is to change the mind. I mean, it just wanders around from place to place <laughs> already anyway. Now we're just beginning to guide it so that it, that easy move and now be moved from something unwholesome into something wholesome. Yeah, and that's another, leading into that, because it's perfect, leading into the question, another one would be, because I was, I was there's three that were mentioned when I read today, uh, not, there's to be free, or the states and characteristics of a person that's realized right view, like the, the mundane, like super mundane right view, is non-aversion, non-delusion, and non, uh, the end, I think it was ignorance, non-ignorance. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking, like, okay, uh, like there's wholesome and then there's unwholesome. And then, but it seems like everything wholesome is like, to me at least, like, okay, there are things that are wholesome, right? Like you can do good things. Sure. But then you realize that non-aversion is like the acceptance of everything, though without feeling ill will towards it. So how do you deal with, like, like obviously I can get into a happy state, but the happy state will disappear. Can you eventually. hold the microphone a little closer oh, to your mouth? Yeah, yeah. yeah can you hear me now? Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Like uh, the aversion, um, the non-aversion, like non-aversion is accepting, not just accepting everything passively, I wouldn't say that, but it's being mindful in everything, meaning like you can't, like there is no attachment to it in that sense. So how do you deal with, because somebody who train, like I can train in unwholesome and wholesome for the rest of my life and continually grow in that into growing into wholesome, you know, deeds and wholesome thoughts and things like that. But eventually one day will Nothing come when it yeah. happens for the rest of your life, but there, yeah. there will be just one moment after another, another and every after, time yeah. of it is just a now. Yeah. So it's a matter of wholesome versus unwholesome in this present moment. Yeah. And then, cause I would get in, like I would go, let's say I'm in a happy state of mind, but knowing that this happy state of mind is not me is not like myself. It's just a state of mind that arose because of certain intentions that I put forth. 
or maybe just because of the environment or things that I'm unaware of. Mm-hmm. But but then I think, okay, non-aversion, non... Because if, if I cling to this happiness and I say, oh my God, I'm doing so good, I'm doing so well, I'm finally making progress. I mean, I swear to you, it's like every moment of my life I've ever done that, I've learned only one thing. The other comes. The other side comes, which is like, if you talk too big, you'll always remember that, you you know, you get kind of put down a little bit by just the law of cause and effect, it seems. Okay. Now, here's so what you're saying, though, yeah. is that um, you're giving credit to the here now. Yeah. But then there's a mechanism in the mind that says, but wait a minute, you used to be like this. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. you kind of take yourself right back into the past to compare what's going on now. So we need a new point of mindfulness to say, wait a minute, I'm going to stay out of the past right now, too. Yes. Okay. I don't have to. I can just enjoy what is right now without yeah. comparing this to the uh, that, saying that old stuff is going to come back. Because we know yeah. that it will. Mm. But when when it does, now we need to just practice again. Basically, what we're talking about is um, a shorthand way is to say to get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. Yeah. Over and over and over again. And then after we learn and we develop getting into a state of satisfaction, we then want to start operating in the way of sustaining that so that we can keep that state of satisfaction yeah. uh, and that you can begin to work with those together. But you know that we're going to lose it because the mind has been heretofore untrained and that it's kind of wild. Yeah. But every time that we keep coming back to this present moment is a new training. So, yeah, and, and then I would ask, like, uh, is it because eventually, like, pleasure and pain, I don't know if, because in, in the Buddha, like, when he described the jhanas, like, he described emotions, emotional mm-hmm. states. And then then he would always talk about sensuality, which is like pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain and non-feeling. So those those three those three feelings: pleasure, pain, and nothing. And then I'm wondering, like, yeah. No, I wouldn't say that. No. Okay. No, no, no. It doesn't. No. Oh, um, I would go back to say that you're you've gone too far. Okay. And we need to back <laughs> a little bit. Okay. In time, in the sense that yes, there is a feeling of liking that gives rise to wanting. And if mm-hmm. that wanting becomes strong, it becomes desiring or lust or gotta have it. Yes. Then there is the feeling of not liking, that if that is also ignorant, mm-hmm. it will normally uh, dress, uh, or, or um, go into, I don't like it, therefore I want to get rid of it. Aversion. I don't Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then there is the third feeling, which is not neutral at all. Okay. It's a strong feeling. It's not a nothing feeling. If it were a nothing feeling, then it would be a nothing feeling. It would be no feeling at all. But this is a strong feeling, but it's a strong feeling that's neither a liking feeling nor a disliking feeling. 
Yeah. It's okay. Okay. Feeling of confusion. Mm. Oh my God. No. Okay. Yeah. Tick. Like boom. Like something just went off in my brain. That makes sense because this monk kept saying non-feeling makes everybody feel discomfortable. And I was like, how is that possible? So he was translating it wrong or something. And I guess the conf- it's the doubt. It's the, it's a lot the of con- people in English, they translate that wrongly. It's actually stated in English as a feeling that is, not, it, that is neither a feeling of I like it, nor a feeling of I don't like it. Yeah. And then I, am, I, am I neutral? Am I wrong here as well? I'm going to ask because the Buddha said that that feeling is important. It's actually helpful, right? It can help you. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And okay. It is also quite dangerous. First, yeah, it can be. It's ignorant. Or when it's not yeah. wise. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Wisdom point of these of the contact of the arising feeling means mm-hmm. that we can do something uh, correct, valuable, appropriate, or wholesome. And that if we do not have wisdom or mindfulness at the point of contact so that when this feeling arises, then it will arise and operate out of the old habit system. Hmm. Oh, wow, wow, yeah. Wow, that's like, wow, just one word, that blew my mind. (laughs) Because now I'm thinking like everything... That makes so much sense because I'm like, when have I ever felt nothing? <laughs> it's like, and then I'm thinking like my habits and that, because when you, when you fulfill, uh, let's say a strong addiction or something in my experience, usually what always comes is confusion. Where is it? Where am I? Who am I? Where am I going? Oh my God, where is it? I need it. I need it. And then all you, you don't know, you just need it because if you get it, then you feel like you. You know, you have some sense of peace or whatever. Some Precisely. sense of, yeah. Okay. Now, here's the good news. And that is, is that by, by knowing our feelings through our wisdom, we can begin to change them. That it would actually be a skill to be developed, to feel the way that you want to feel. Okay. An example of that is is that we can, in fact, change that feeling of confusion into the feeling of curiosity. Yeah. They're very closely related. One has wisdom. The other one has no wisdom. Okay, confusion has no wisdom to it. About the only wisdom we have is, is that, that I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. However... When we bring wisdom to that, or in another way of saying, by bringing joy into that confusion, we make it into an investigation. We become curious. Yeah. That's when it becomes to our advantage. Mm -hmm. When we make it into a a curiosity that we really want to know what it is, rather than being afraid because... You can you can actually see that uh, confusion has fear built into yeah. it, which is why we run to objects and things like that. Mm-hmm. But if we are in fact able to change that confusion into curiosity, 
Now we really want to know. Now we're going, we've actually made that change into right noble view of investigation. Let's look at what's going on. Let's see what it is. Let's uh, not be confused about it. Let's find out what it is. We can also learn to control the other feelings. An example of controlling the, the feeling of liking. Um, this is actually a story that I got to tell you because it's so beautiful. This is a story about Achan Cha and Achan Sumedho were in a, uh, a ceremony uh, that where there was a lot of uh, uh, Thai girls all dressed up. Okay. okay. And um, uh, that's a, a common thing. So Achan Cha asks Sumedho at that point in time, what do you think? And Achan Sumedho <laughs> gave him a brilliant, a brilliant answer. And that brilliant answer was, is that, oh, I like it. But I don't want it. Hmm. Okay. See, he's wise enough at that point of contact to recognize that he likes it. But he doesn't necessarily want it. He just says, I like it. Hmm. You yeah. begin to see that. And there are many things that you'll find out that you thought uh, that you liked that you automatically wanted. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like you see a pretty girl all dolled up with all of her makeup on and everything, <laughs> and she's there to make sure that everybody likes her. I mean, she doesn't like herself without the makeup, but with the she's pretty. Yeah, okay. yeah. She sees all of that makeup and that girl, and we like it. And the thought is, oh, maybe I should go introduce myself. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or plans about what I'm going to say, right? That's yeah. the one mistake. Yeah, okay. stage may happen all the way up to the altar, but never mind. <laughs> That's the wanting. But Samato, right that, right that very moment, right at the point of contact, and he sees a pretty girl, and he says, I like it. I know I like it. That's something that's deeply built in. We don't in easily changing that, but with wisdom, I can say I like it. But I don't want it. Yeah, because you. And you're, on yeah. a basis all the time. We see cars that we like that we don't want. Yeah. If I tried to, if show, I wanted yeah. a car saw that I liked, I would be in a state of uh, great desire all the time. And when they go to an auto show, they may like every car in there, but they don't want every car that's in there. If they did, yeah. they'd be broke or miserable, one or the other. <laughs> and so we are already selective. But we are not always selective wisely. We are often uh, uh, ignorant and therefore are not able to make the selection. And so we go then from liking to wanting. Mm. And wanting goes, uh, got to have it, craving. Yeah. I really got to have it. So instead of just going and chatting with the girl, we want her phone number. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's when craving is starting in. Yeah. Or we want to go out on a date. We want to yeah. touch <laughs> This is yeah. all craving. 
that uh, um, that uh, that gives us so much unhappiness. In yeah. fact, guy who is um, craving to touch the girl thinks that he's going to feel good if he does. But no, the craving is just going to lead to more craving and more craving. Yeah, it's to Stop and say, I like it, but I don't want it. Yeah, and that's the hardest part because you, then you, you're left with the feeling of who am I? Or because it feels like this chase of craving is the reason for your life. It's like most of our lives, I guess. Actually, that, that craving that we're talking about um, has the quality of wanting to be the owner. Craving mm-hmm. has the quality of wanting to own. Yeah. Well, ownership, the way that we use it in our language, requires an owner. Who's the owner here? That's the self. Yeah. If there is no ownership, no control, then there is no self. This is why we have altruism. We can have compassion for other people. We have uh, goodwill for other people. And that happens a lot. If someone is selfish all the time, he's probably in a state of great suffering all the time. He never gets any joy or pleasure because he's always in a state of want, mm-hmm. a state of trying to fulfill the self. Yeah. These people can have heart attacks, they can get into prison, they can become CEOs, they can become president of the United States, and they think that <laughs> by getting they'll feel better, and they don't. They feel worse. Mm. Yeah. Because of wanting, wanting, wanting. But if we can come to the point of saying, I'm satisfied, I like it, but I don't want it. I'm, I like it, but I'm satisfied without it. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the part. That's the part where it's like, uh, so like, I, is is the thing about it, like the feeling, the feeling, because the feeling. I think it's weird because ooh, I don't know how to explain this. Um, let me think. Uh, so, with the no self, right? The personality, the personality. It would you call that like the thing that is like. The continuity, that's the... Because when I look at the Buddha, right, or other people, um, Ajahn Chah, you, uh, you're normal, right? You have a, you have a, you have a, you know, you're, you can talk, you can eat, you can, you know, talk to people. It's not like you're in a state of dullness and, and a sleepiness mm-hmm. and complete absent-mindedness. Because I always had the question, because this, this feeling... When I feel, I have had experiences of feeling like it seems as if I am, I am not, I am outside of myself. But like, I've, but then when I come back out of it, you're like, but I was still there. And, but the, so the question I have is like, how do you discern between not self and I guess this feeling of being present? Okay. Let's talk yeah. about that from this perspective. Yeah. And that is is that the sense of self mm-hmm. has also the sense of permanency. 
Yes. You get the idea that the self that I was when I was five is the same self that I am now. Mm-hmm. Where, in fact, throughout the day, our moods change. We are not unified. That we are this feeling, and then that feeling, and then the other feeling. And in each case, these are different selves. They're not the same self all the time. Mm-hmm. The self is, in fact, not permanent. This is the point that uh, where Buddhism differs from most other religions is that they think that there is a permanent self, a soul. Yeah. That that persists and has a particular identification or label to it. Mm -hmm. But now physics will prove that there is no such thing. Yeah. That every molecule will break down. Therefore, the soul could not be represented represented in DNA because all the DNA molecules will break apart. Mm -hmm. We need a kind of a molecule that in fact is so stable that it cannot be broken apart. Mm -hmm. And yet it cannot be a simple one. It has to be very complex because it's got the quality of identification. In other words, if 30 people died in a bus crash, how are the souls going to get straightened out? They've got to be able to tell one. They can't just lump all 30 people into the same soul basket and say they've got all the same future. Yeah. Everybody's got an individual soul. And so there's that basic contradiction within physics is that um, you have to get down to very simple items before there's any continuity. Mm. any permanency Mm. Um, and yet uh, a soul requires enormous complexity yeah at least seven different billion souls but then you've got the animal world too and now you've got at least uh, uh, the universe maybe maybe billions billions more so we need a uh, uh, this identification number that's much bigger than a telephone or a social security number. It's got to be a very, very long digit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be able to separate one soul from another, and yet there is no physical mechanism for such a soul. So physics just automatically just destroys the concept of a soul right there. That's one of the reasons why religions are in general against science. For yeah. Buddhism, it's science. <laughs> yeah. There is no soul like that. But there is a personality, and that personality changes over time. It changes over 